In this episode, we're having a conversation with faculty about academic culture, from classroom culture to the cultures of our disciplines. Are we teaching students to conform to our pre-established classroom and discipline culture, or are we inviting them to co-create something that makes more sense to all of us? Jade, do you consider an academic discipline a culture? And if you do, how do we introduce students to that culture? Do we enculturate them to our academic discipline? What are your thoughts about that? I definitely think academic disciplines are a culture. Coming from the letters department and teaching English, that in itself is a moniker that represents this cultural bias of a discipline, that it comes from a very Western-centric point of view that marginalizes many other cultures around the world, that it's English with a capital E, and so that there's one way to speak it, to read it, to write it. And so I think part of my process in enculturating students to the, the culture of my discipline, as well as the culture of the college, has been a simultaneous process of decolonizing myself because I went to school in this system. I had to have that culture shock of learning terms, learning processes, and learning these ways of thinking. For instance, right now I'm reading a book that just came out by Matthew Celesis called Craft in the Real World. He's this amazing Asian American writer um, known for his novels mostly, but this is a book about teaching composition and creative writing and about how all of these terms that we are supposed to teach students as soon as they enter the discipline from the 100 level should be thrown out the window because they reinforce a lot of this institutional, monolithic, myopic cultural viewpoint. So everything from, you know, writing a character as this individual who has free will and choices and conflicts with men and, you know, there's all these assumptions and cultural biases that go into that. So I'm really learning to write prompts and assignments that don't present it as a culture to which students have to acclimate and adapt or fail, but rather as more of a cultural exchange. So like from the get-go in the semester, I always try to make sure to preface everything with the students bringing their culture into the classroom. One thing I did this year in Lit uh, 120, which is focused on children's and YA lit, is that they had to do a little video that walks us through, you know, their favorite childhood story. And I say story because not everyone had books growing up in their house. And a lot of students shared that. And I shared that myself. Like books were a no-no. That was a waste of time. Like go make money, go get married, go, go do something useful, tangible, not read books. So a lot of students shared that. Other students are sharing books that they read to their kids or that their mom read to them before their mom left. And so they're bringing not only a relevant text into the class, but they're sharing the cultural context behind it. So immediately they know that their voices and experiences are centered coming into whatever text we're reading. And I always try to think about assignments that are going to allow students to contribute their cultural knowledge outside of the classroom, to see that outside of the classroom is a classroom in and of itself, that those are the indelible lessons that students carry with them, regardless of what level class they enter. I've had my MANA students, you know, edit Wikipedia because they see things that are on there that are trash about Pacific Islanders and, you know, these overarching stereotypes. And so they get to say, hey, no, at my grandma's birthday party, we did this and this is how it is. So they really get to have some authority in who gets to say what about them. 
So really they get to acquire that agency. And that's something I try to thread throughout my assignments so that it's a cultural exchange and not just a unidirectional acclimation to a historically very prejudiced institutional system. There's a lot there certainly. And I wanna stay there for a second because what you're really talking about here is linguistic bias, right? Um, within that culture. And I would imagine there's some kind of balancing act with what you feel you need to prepare students for in academic culture kind of generally and in letters and, and composition and English specifically when they go to, you know, it's always this prep for the upper division courses. So maybe talk about that linguistic bias and, and, and also where you feel the need still, if you do, to really get them used to this standard American English that is going to probably be part of their programming throughout that, that uh, upper division upper, upper division experience, as well as what it sounds like you're doing is you're acclimating students to a disruptive culture and, and something that's different. And, and maybe students come to that, come to your class and th that wasn't what they were expecting. They were expecting kind of more of a traditional approach. And have you experienced resistance to that? I know those are a lot of questions right there, but um, <laughs> if you could talk about that a bit. Yeah, well, I think, um, Sean, that linguistic bias is something that students experience, but we experience as instructors too. I mean, I'm first generation everything to college and teaching and all that. And so I found like in recent years, especially, there's been a lot of talk about threshold concepts. Like what are your threshold concepts? And these are kind of the barriers that we set up for students and faculty alike. Um, and that's what we're assessed on. Are we teaching these concepts? Are students fluent in this particular language? And I think students gravitate toward that. They want to check off boxes on a list and that feels very secure and it feels like you're moving forward and especially this very cultural narrative about forward progress but students definitely resist the fact that I often don't start with that term I'll start out kind of in the ether and this very nebulous learning experience, having them do an activity or a project that doesn't have a clear cut standard or doesn't have a checklist of boxes. I just got an email from a student saying, what exactly do you want me to do? Because I was giving them so many options and so much freedom. He's like, just tell me what to write. And this is a creative writing class. He's like, tell me what character you want me to write. And I was like, bro, you tell me the story that's important to you. Like, who is someone that you want to represent? And likewise, Sean, I know that you've witnessed the MANA program's family night event. And that is very similarly for this group of marginalized students who, you know, don't have a strong footing in the culture of college or academics or however you want to phrase that ivory tower language. I give them this project to say, translate something that we've learned into a performance that you can share with your community. And they're just like, the what? <laughs> um, so I think that when we approach enculturation as this reciprocated exchange, it can be very, very disorienting because students are taught to trust in a system that tells them that this leader, this instructor is going to tell you what you don't know and what you're supposed to know. And that's all that matters. And so when you flip that and say, hey, you already know a lot of this stuff because you've lived it and you can teach me more about it than I could ever say, that is very anxiety inducing. Um, so to call someone a leader, to call someone a creator when they've 
haven't been given that agency in this system or in this culture or on in this nation state, that is, that's very unsettling on so many levels. So I think a part of it is, you know, those students feel like they can call me Auntie Jade, that they can cuss to me, that they can text me in the middle of the night to share that anxiety. So I think it's really beyond the curriculum and what we're teaching them and beyond the assignments, it's that reciprocated relationship, that rapport where they feel like when it gets hard and I get scared of doing this new thing, this new way of thinking and knowing and learning that I have you to back me up and be a cheerleader for me. And that's something that I wish that I had when I was a student, because I was the person, the first gen student who didn't and couldn't ask for help. And so I failed many, many times. And so I'm trying to reflect on that and learn on that to do different for the students to know that they don't have to be as afraid. Thank you. Alexis, you want to jump in? Go for yeah, it. Yeah, I wanted to jump in. Following up on that, I guess, is right. I'm an anthropologist. And one of the things that I love about anthropology and why I am an anthropologist is because yeah, all the stuff that we're talking about, about cultures and enculturation and power are things that anthropology gets to explicitly teach, right? So like, I get to show you the matrix, right? As, as we're working through this. And that's something that, that I love more than anything, right? I, I study power. I study decolonization. And so when I think about how it is that we approach this, number one, I would say academia in general, right? Uh, uh, these fields of study that we have are a culture and that all of the different disciplines are subcultures. So we have to also recognize that, that academia itself is a culture and that culture is is rooted in a very specific culture. And so one of the things that, that I do, to that point about, uh, Sean, you were asking about what we set people up for. One of the things that I think is important, and, and I, I talk about this with students and with anyone else, faculty, whoever will listen, is that we assume that the classroom or academia is a cultural, right? That it is a, a mechanism, it's a method, uh, it's a place. But we don't recognize that it is a culture. In the same way, right, I, I do state theory. We, we think state itself is just a, a form of government, as if forms of government aren't cultural creations. And so in, in the academic experience itself, you, there is a culture. And it's that unspoken culture. We know that. And so one of the things that I do is not just teach in a way that is culturally responsive, right? giving the students agency to, to share their own experiences, right? Involving them in, in the classroom, sitting back um, occasionally. I think probably what I find even more important to uh, culturally responsive teaching that I do is I teach hegemony and ideological domination and the ways in which like them being in the classroom is a form of domination, right? Them being required to write in, in a, uh, uh, standard American English, them calling that uh, dialect of English standard, right? All of these things. And so when we think about how we're preparing students for the future, whatever their pursuit might be, on the one hand, right, I think teaching them to be disruptive is important because they're disrupting, right, the cultural hegemony that has existed since, right, the, the, the founding of our educational institutions. On the other hand, we want to teach them how they're being dominated. Like, what are these rules? What is going on? Yeah. And so by showing them that, that forms of power, my favorite one is 
students will say, oh, professors won't accept emails if I don't write it like this and this and this. And I said, now, now, first of all, that is a form of domination. Like, uh, uh, you know, language is an act. Language is, is an action. And, and if you accomplish sharing that message, then, then you accomplish a task. There's no right or wrong way to do that. So uh, enforcing a, a rightness or wrongness to communication is a form of, of dominance and power. And so on the one hand, like I tell them that. On the other hand, I tell them that like, right, this is what professors want you to do. Do you have to do that for me? No, right? You can you know, send me an email like a text, but for other professors, it's a form of power. And so you going against that is going to get a, a backlash. And so by not only right uh, providing them the classroom experiences that are that are uh, you know culturally responsive, but also showing them the way that that academia is set up as as a form of domination, and all the different ways that that it occurs within uh, you know uh, the classroom and outside of right the, the broader society, I think gives them uh, many more tools to succeed and to uh, disrupt what has been right, uh, the academy that uh, we have all experienced for our whole life. Yeah. And it's so on the one hand, it's it's well, what you're saying is additive, right? It's it's pluralizing what we can talk about in a classroom within a discipline. And it's then what Jade was talking about. It's an exchange, a negotiation of values, an exchange of, of knowledges, ways of seeing, ways of expressing. And yet we still have this sort of anxiety about, well, where are we sending our students off to in the next step, right? And so there's, there's a, a responsiveness to students, who they are when they come in and, and, and what they want to do in the space. But then there's also this, but they need to be something slightly different or, or added to, to move on to the next. I was just in a meeting and I heard a, um, one of our colleagues who teaches in STEM uh, ask a question about, you know, I, I get how to kind of, you know, humanize the, the science classroom, but I'm really worried about the writing. And I'm not sure what to do about that because I don't really teach the writing, but if their lab reports aren't this, then the next step is, is really challenging for them. And so, so there is some kind of linearity we're hanging on to, right? Um, and so I, I, I'll just say one more thing to kind of tie things together. I think Jade, it's so fascinating in our discipline, disruptive literature becomes literature, right? There's a moment where it's, it looks ugly and people are resisting it. And then all of a sudden it's now we have a whole lit class where we study that thing, right? And so our discipline sort of eats what is disruption and it becomes part of what then we teach as that monolithic English. You know, it was really great hearing Jade's perspective, hearing Alexis's um, perspectives, you know, I, in computer studies, you know, it's really kind of interesting where our culture is, it's, you know, a lot of times it's ones and zeros. I mean, it's very objective where it's kind of like the computer's on and computer's off. Literally binary. <laughs> literally binary. It literally is yeah. binary. So, you know, it's kind of interesting, you know, hearing these perspectives and then, you know, and kind of tying in, you know, what Alexis was saying as far as like, you know, lab reports or other items, you know, as our students leave uh, or as they move on from CSIT, especially if they're doing cyber, there's a lot of documentation. So, and there's like better ways to do that. So if you say, hey, do this picture and write this up, it's kind of prescribed, but I guess I'm just kind of interested in, in you know, hearing other person's perspective, you know, what they think about that. So is that kind of like domineering or is that not giving, you know, so I guess 
I put that out to the crowd, kind of like throwing that volleyball in the, or the beach ball era graduation and see what you guys think. But before we even go there, Rick, is your discipline a particular culture or as Alexis is saying, a subculture of academia? And, and how do you approach getting students acquainted with that culture or if they choose to be in that field, how, how do you um, convey the most important aspects of that culture that they will need to learn? For me, it, and I think all of us would agree on this, it really just comes down to, now I agree with Alexis, it is a culture and a subculture in there. But you know, I think for me, especially, it, it really comes down to that connection and that trust on that first day. And just in IT, there is so much knowledge and it changes so absolutely fast. And I, you know, I tell people in my class on day one, I'm like, I am not the shell answer man. If you want that, that's maybe you're gonna find somebody on this campus that'll claim that, I hope not, but that is not me. It's like, you guys know things, you guys are working in things, you know, I've been outside of IT hands-on every day for like nine years now in the classroom. So there's students that come in that are doing this every day. And I'm like, hey, if you guys have that, let's collaborate. It's like, I am not your instructor. I am your facilitator. Mm-hmm. So the second, so Thank I you. learn from you guys as much as you learn from me every single day. The fact that I get paid for this is almost criminal. Don't tell Sonny. But <laughs> just, you know, it's just like, it's such a cool thing that we get to be lifelong learners and that our students educate us every day. It's just so flipping cool. I have to say, I thank you for saying that you're a facilitator and not an instructor. That's one of the, that's one of my biggest pet peeves. It's one of the things that I do in my classes. In fact, this, this idea of language bias, I think can also be sort of the spin on that is to change the language that we as the facilitators use in the classrooms to allow the students to have some ownership and to take some agency. I, I don't talk, we don't talk about my class or their class. It's our class. And I had a mm-hmm. student even bring that up in an email the other day. I can't believe that you said that. I never paid attention to that before, but I want to thank you for saying that because it's changed the way that I think about what we do in this class. It was one of the greatest compliments that I think I've ever gotten from a student, something that simple that changes the way they think about how they're able to react and respond in the classroom. I teach science mostly to people who have self-selected against science. To be fair, I get to do the the STEM students every once in a while, but I think that also gives me a kind of an interesting perspective too, because I get to have the STEM students who like, I think, uh, was it Curry, you were talking about this, the person that was talking to you about how, how, where do I need them to be, right? When they leave my classroom, because there's a next step. Okay, when I teach the, the general ed classes, there's no next step. I am literally their terminal science course, probably for the rest of their lives. I'm their last formal exposure to science, probably in their entire lives, right? I mean, there's over 300,000 students just in the U.S. alone that take an introductory astronomy class every single year. That's how big of a deal it is. So no pressure there, right? But then you get the STEM students who, you're right, they they have to be in a certain place if they intend to to carry on with a certain STEM field. So I think when I started thinking about um, some of the prompts that you sent, I wanted to say, yeah, disciplines can be a culture, but they don't have to be. For example, my first order thought is astronomy itself is not a culture, but it can be. It depends on who my audience is, I think. But also, I tend to think of sciences setting up a class system, like literally, right, a caste system, if you will, because it's the those who can and those who can't, which frankly is total crap. But the point is, that's how people see it, right? The ones who can do math and science and the ones who can't. 
And so some of us are special and some of us are not. And so it sets up this divide already. So, it, and it's not so much, it's just not, it's not so much to me as, I don't think of it in terms of culture, right? I think of it as like the haves and the have nots really. It just sort of segregates everybody in a way that to me is really sad and unfortunate. And so it's one of the reasons that I try to be really careful about the language that I use. It's one of the reasons that I don't have office hours anymore. I have help sessions because office hours sounds like you're in trouble, right? I mean, who wants to go to office hours? <laughs> but if you say help session, then all of a sudden it becomes accessible in a way to some people who didn't even know what office hours were, right? If they don't know what office hours are, that sounds really scary to them. And so I took that, I totally stole that from a friend. Yeah, you're right. Help session sounds like something I want to go to. Office hours sounds like I'm being punished for something terrible that's happened, right? And Rika, I call mine a happy hour. <laughs> yeah. Well, we have, when we have review sessions for tests, those are tailgate parties. <laughs> I, we don't do that anymore. Right. But, but on the rare occasion that it happens, right. Then a review session can become a tailgate party. Um, so yeah, changing the language like that is important. So I also wanted to say too, those, that idea that there's this disruptive literature that you were talking about, right? I, I, it's bigger than that. It's, it's not just literature, it's ideas, disruptive ideas. Do you know anything about the progression of modern science, right? Talk about disrupting the history of humans on planet earth, right? Since the very moment that humans have looked up and asked, what is all that? Where are we in the midst of all this? The most, some of the most disruptive ideas in all of human thinking, right? And trying to learn how to be mitocognitive and try to learn how to conduct science, uh, scientific experiments, if you will, right? To think independently and objectively. I think all of that sort of just feeds into this in a way that I, I know I'm not great at it, but I try to bring it into that classroom because one of the first things I do is, is ask them what their experiences are, right? These questionnaires that ask them what their experiences in math and science have been, and not just math and science, but what are you actually interested in? and why they're taking this course, which, you know, seems like, well, you know, a lot of people do that kind of stuff. Yeah, but I, I need, actually need that information. It's not that I'm just curious and I, I want to know. I need it because I need to understand who I'm talking to here, who I'm engaging with, who's going to be coming back at me with these ideas that are, half of them are going to be better than the analogies that I could have ever given you. That's where I get all my good analogies, right, is from them and their experiences because, those general education students are quite literally everybody. I mean, demographically speaking, we've done the research. We know who they are. They're literally everybody. I couldn't ask for a better, you know, set of experiences. I couldn't ask for a better demo set, right, to work with. So I propose this out to everybody. You know, at the end of the day, does it come, you know, especially in that first five minutes of class, I mean, especially in an on-ground class, I mean, you, you have made or lost that class in that first five, maybe 10 minutes. But does it just really not come down to you're kind of this authoritative figure, I probably in the minds of students, but it really is making yourself personable, creating that connection and that trust in that five minutes. And that really, that's the game changer for a semester. Yeah, go ahead. What you're Carl. talking about is creating your own classroom culture in a way, right? And 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 I think even that you were talking like there's academic cultures, there's subcultures, and I think even our own classrooms are a kind of subculture that way. And we try to foster a culture of support, a culture of participation and engagement, of you know mutual respect, of responsibility, of professionalism as well, right? And there is that sort of balance sometimes 
we're talking about that idea of linearity and threshold markers and, and these things. And I think sometimes there's this balance of where we're looking at our own classroom culture. And we're also saying, well, what's the culture of the industry? What's the culture of the upper division classes that we're trying to prepare students for? What's the culture of the workplace that they're going to enter? And there is some level of balance of having students recognize a little bit about what that culture will be and what the expectations will be and how that might differ from our own classroom culture and what we're setting up. I, I, I can sometimes feel that tension between those things uh, of how I wanna approach my students and my expectations and how, how receptive I might be, for example, to the nature of an email and, and how it's written and how maybe that might be received by a different audience, right? That, that's in the workplace. I think that that's an interesting balance, but like what I think what you're kind of talking about, Rick, is actually establishing this sort of culture where that is the instructor as a facilitator and that that we are collectively learning together, that we're contributing to our our, our collective intelligence and you know at, and that that's part of the culture of the classroom that we're trying to engender. But in a way, that's a culture too, I, I think, right? Like right into our own rooms. But just to touch on Rika, because I'll forget it. But she said, our classroom. And that scene of um, Fast Times at Richmond High, when Spicoli brings in the pizza, it's not my pizza or whatever. It's like, it's our pizza. And he starts handing it out. I always tell people, this is our <laughs> class, our familia. What's in this room is in this room. It's not going to leave this room. I trust that we're all here together. We're all learning. And you know, I think just... Uh, you almost see the sigh of relief in that first five or 10 minutes, just getting that out there. So Alexis. So one of the things that like maybe to pose a challenge to everybody, and it's something that like I talk to my students about in class and talking about power. We're taking for granted the idea that, that going to school, that an education that's sitting in the class is a necessarily good thing. We are, we are start from the point that, that right, school is not a form of domination. And you might say, so imagine the student comes into your classroom and is like, you know, why am I here? Why am I wasting my time? And I'm like, totally, like you're just, right? You're, you live in a society where we're forced to work, you know, 40 hours a week and be away from our family. And like, who came up with this? I always laugh at the students, like who came up with this? Like, this was the worst idea ever. But like we often don't question that we we presume that that oh well your life is better because you got an education or your life is better because you know that and then we miss the fact that we're also setting up this the you know, Tariqa's point that there's the caste system in society that says that those who are educated are somehow better people that that itself is an inherent good instead of simple existence is that and i think that if we recognize that that simply by thinking that education itself is a good and let me be clear i think education is a good thing like i think it's an empowering thing i think it's a beneficial thing i think you know we can demonstrate that it's increased you know uh, uh you know livelihood it's increased life expectancy you know it's uh, you know uh, brought up women and children like there are many goods to it but it also like beyond simply that the, that evidence of it, right? Uh, there is also the assumption that's made about that evidence that that therefore means that it is an inherent good, necessarily good. And so 
when we consider that, that education might itself be a form of domination, that telling students that it's not a valuable thing, right? Like, think about the way we talk about homeless people. Like, students like, oh, homeless people are lazy or they don't work, or maybe they feel sorry for homeless people and they tell all this stuff. I'm like, why can't you just be homeless? Like, just cruise through life. Like, you know, studying the Solomon Islands, there's plenty of people that just cruise through life. They're like, they work for like, you know, a couple months, whatever. And they're like, I'm going to the village. And they're like, what are you going to do? Sit around. Nothing. And the idea that doing nothing is, is, is problematic is something we're, we're, you know, inculcating in the students. You know, there's like, oh, well, you, your value in society is how much you know or how much you contribute rather than like, you don't have to contribute anything. So, so one of the things that, that it also helps when being culturally responsive in the classroom is recognizing that the classroom Again, the classroom itself is a form of domination, even even when it's empowering at the same time. Well, and what you're making me think about, Alexis, is we're not set up to honor certain values or expressions of, of how one values time or wants to express. A, a rich, in other words, you can't not do anything if you come to school. There's no place for just contemplating, like just sitting. You have to be productive in one way or another. So the way that we are set up I think, and this is really helpful for me. So a classroom culture, a discipline culture, and then an institutional culture, right? All of those things are helpful to separate out. But but there's something about each one of those, just, you know, we're, we're so transactional, right? In, in kind of, and that's really kind of at the core of our, our culture, even if what we're doing is just having a discussion. Like, you cannot have silence in a classroom for too long. Otherwise, why are we in here, Right. So that's really interesting. Like, it's like how, how much can we disrupt our culture as academics? So, so, so one last point about that, and I'll stop talking. But, but so that illustrates a bigger point that, that is important to make, is that you can't really separate out different aspects within a culture. Right now, we're talking about, like, you know, a, a Western Euro-American culture. So, so all these institutions that we're talking about, all these ideas that we're talking about, are also themselves constructed in that lens. And so even our disciplines themselves have been constructed in those lenses, right? Like, uh, Rick, even though c computers are, are ones and zeros, and I know very little about them, like, they, they, uh, like the computer itself, right, the computer culture, like having a computer, that sort of thing, is constructed in sort of the, the Western psyche. And that doesn't mean that it hasn't expanded out and, and, and done that. But I think that that's why it becomes difficult to presume that anything uh, with it. I'm reliving my dissertation. I make this argument about the state, but it's like to presume that any of these structures that that make up, you know, all that is our our, our culture and society, uh, even mathematics and stuff like that, right? That that they're somehow separate from from culture. So then that begs the question: Whose culture? And of course, it is the it is the dominant culture that is reflected throughout. You know, Alexis. First off, I miss you. Um, the I when I when I hear all of that, I think of like uh, in, in our disciplines, but I think generally everybody can kind of have that base question of like, what are we doing here? Is this a worthwhile endeavor? Like what, what what's really happening here? You know, in sociology, we get to go into that into some deep ways when we're talking about education as a structure, right? And and as an institution and and both, you know, we have agency and some freedom and flexibility within that institution. But at the same time, there are some considerable restraints and, 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 and there's, there's barriers and, and there are, we have to work within, we can't really work 
outside of the structure and still be legitimate in the eyes of larger society. It comes to that question of when we're doing an activity, you know, this goes to Curry's point of like, there's no time to think, you know, when I got into this, I thought I'm going to be able to read all the time. I'm going to be able to sit and think. I'm going to be able to innovate and create. And no, I am task after task after email after email. That's pretty much my existence on a day-to-day work, you know, work week. And I think about like when students ask, when we're doing an activity, having a discussion, the question, does this count, right? And they say, does this count? And my response is always, it all counts, right? And, and, and grades are important. And I know that might be your chief concern here, but mine is learning. And I feel like we're doing that together. I want to make this enjoyable because honestly, no matter how legitimate we think this all is, no matter if we think it's going to pan out for you and lead to upward social mobility and a better life and all of that, this is how we're spending our time. And we're spending that time together. And that's the most valuable thing. And if we're not doing that fully engaged, and if I'm not facilitating that word again, a way that promotes that full engagement and exploration of these ideas, then I don't want to do it anymore. This is not how I want to spend my time. So just to answer the question that you were initially bringing up there. I just need to jump in and say that I wish everyone in this room had been my teacher or will be my teacher in the future because I think it would have changed my life. (laughs) Rika, I'm totally interested in astronomy now that I've heard you talk. Um, Alexis, you're my homegirl. I would follow you on Instagram if I was creepy. Um, But I think going back to Alexis's point, um, I think this underlying culture that unifies all of what we do in education is that it's like this consumer system. I think that idea that students pay for school, so they're expecting something commodifiable, something that they can monetize out of it really shapes the way that we are kind of forced to approach it, the way that we're supposed to engage with our students and the way that we're supposed to engage with each other across departments. Curry, you and I know teaching in letters, we are the least money-making major out there. And we don't uh, encounter very many English majors because they're like, damn, I want to make money. I got to (laughs) go do something in the business department or what have you. And I think that that becomes really challenging for students, especially like when I was teaching the hip hop lit class, I encountered a lot of microaggressions and a lot of pushback from lots of different people across campus because it was not seen as something legitimate or a form of knowledge or a way of thinking and knowing that was, you know, monetarily valued, um, that there was this racial, um, not even an undertone, but like an explicit racist message that hip hop is for the uneducated. I had people making comments about these people um, don't know what literature is. And so the students really had to grapple with that. Like we're spending time learning about something that means something to us. This is literature that we listen to and live and breathe every day. And even though Kendrick is winning the Pulitzer, we still have to deal with people at an institution who's supposed to support us saying that this is not valid. We want this class taken off the roster. You know, we we don't see this as something that's worthy of uh, a degree. And so there's this whole commodified view of education that creates this hierarchy of what is legitimate, what is valuable, what is something that you should learn. Um, And so I, I think that all of that ties together with race and ethnicity and gender and sexual orientation that Um, so many people's stories get pushed to the wayside. Um, And so to have that 
disruptive role can be very, very challenging for faculty and students alike. That idea of education as a commodity is very much kind of within our, I don't know, capitalist mindset. Like you see education, and, and I think there's external sort of state and bureaucratic pressures, even if students aren't paying, right, where you they want to get students in and get them out and then into industry. And so students are kind of like this cogs in the wheel, and they see education as like this sort of factory of producing workers. And, you know, one of the things that I like <laughs> about my colleagues at Miracosta is every time it becomes it almost seems like that, right? Where this like quick path to choose a major and get in and get out. There's teachers that are pushing back and saying, you know, this is an opportunity to empower students to find who they are and what they want to do and explore and actually, you know, see what it is that makes sense for their life and not just the thing that's going to make them a living only, you know, but the thing that's going to make life worth living you know, for them and for their families. And so, yes, there's an economic element to that, but there's a lot of factors of what that might mean. I think starting to rethink education in, in not just in terms of these sort of commodities and that's a little bit more holistic, collectivistic sort of mindset is, is useful. Okay, so there's a lot more in this conversation, but I think that's probably a good place to pause for a second. Yeah, I like how this is moving down the line in terms of we have, you know, this kind of three different levels of culture that have emerged and and Alexis really uh, laid this out for us nicely where we have kind of the macro view of the academic culture, right? Academia as a as a culture. And then a subculture of that or a smaller culture within that is, you know, at that meso level of our disciplines, whether it be sociology, anthropology, uh, computer science, uh, whatever, right? And, and then there's the micro level of what's going on in, in the culture of our classroom. And they're all part of that larger culture, but there's so much deviation from maybe the traditional ways that we think about it. And now in the second part of the episode that, or part two of this episode, rather, we're going to get more into that culture and what happens in our classrooms and how we kind of grow and evolve and change at that level where I think we have the most agency. Yeah. Yeah. And specifically in the second part, we're going to grapple a little bit with uh, this concept of scaffolding. You know, if, if, if scaffolding is the mechanism that potentially perpetuates Western colonial ways of thinking, ways of learning, it's, it's problematic, right? So we need to think about what are we doing? How are we scaffolding? What, is, what, what are students gaining from this? But also we can't just create an open space and say students go for it, right? Like scaffolding is also the mechanism that allows knowledge to be generated, knowledge to be constructed. So in the, in the second part, we look at scaffold, we, we talk around and about concepts of scaffolding, as, as you said, as we zoom in on that classroom culture. And what I appreciate and for people to listen, listen for in the second episode is the growth and the maturity of, of um, instructors over time, you know, even in the short term and in the long term, there, there's a modeling of that lifelong learning that, that has become such a buzzword and something that is, you know, basically synonymous with higher education. And I think sometimes, you know, especially as tenured faculty, people can think of us kind of being uh, like solidifying or, or, or becoming rigid in our ways. But what, I, what I'm really hearing in the second part of the conversation is 
people are remaining flexible and adaptable and really changing how they're thinking of teaching for, for the contemporary student. Right. And that's exciting because then that's, that's that learning community, right? That's that co-constructors of knowledge in a classroom, right? Which is what we're trying to dig into. That's awesome. This episode is supported by the Miracosa Foundation's Innovation Grant. The Save Topics podcast is produced and engineered by Kelly Barnett. James Garcia handles promotion, student recruitment, and research. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and savetopics.podbean.com. Find us on Apple and Spotify. Please rate and subscribe. Thanks for listening.